This is Office Hours, where the brightest entrepreneurial minds in business, sports, and entertainment get together to talk about success, failure, and everything in between. Take a deep dive into the mindset it takes to excel as our unbelievable hosts and guests share with you the strategies and tools they've used to dominate their respective fields. On this episode of Office Hours, Jack Canfield, Rich Kleiman, Strauss Zelnick, Rob Deer. And Paul D. Pasquale. If you're looking for a book on a topic and you can't find it, it means you're supposed to write it. Jack is a hero of mine, a mentor. We work to, to live, not live to work. More than tech, we've captured lifestyle and design. Fun has been at the root of everything you've done. It's the most fun when it requires the least amount of effort. His tenacity, dude, that is awesome. David Meltzer hosts Office Hours. Let's go to this week's Executive Spotlight. Each week, we'll be interviewing the top entrepreneurs and executives, sharing their personal playbook to success and the lessons they've learned along the way. Paul DePasquale is the CEO of Tivoli Audio, an American audio lifestyle company that celebrated its 20th anniversary in 2020. He was appointed the CEO five years ago, and his career at Tivoli Audio spans from customer service, engineering, sales, marketing, business development, and now CEO. He has combined his love of music, design, and technology to steer and drive the multi-million dollar company. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm David Meltzer, and I am here with our executive spotlight, Paul DePasquale. You know, Paul, I'm always curious, because I was in the hardware business, mm -hmm. uh, CEO of the first uh, smartphone, what was a convergence device in 99 for Samsung. And one of the things I did not like about being in the hardware business was that our biggest competitor was ourselves. In fact, I always tease uh, when I speak people and say, who's the biggest competitor to Apple, to the iPhone? And everyone will say Samsung or wherever. Right. I'll say, no, the iPhone 12 is the biggest competitor. And there's a generational pressure Mm -hmm. uh, when you're in the hardware business, a technology race when you're in the hardware business. And then the other thing that is really difficult is you don't know what other people are doing. Right. So you're competing against yourself and the unknown. How have you dealt with that and been so successful at Tivoli through the years of having the top of the line generational products competing against yourself and competing against the unknown? Yeah, well, I mean, it's really easy to sometimes get caught in your bubble and you get jaded in a sense. I mean, when we came out with this product, uh, 2000 AM FM table radio, people thought we were crazy. Um, it was AM FM and we believed in the DNA. We believed what it stood for and we've carried that DNA throughout all of our products. So even as time went on, new tech, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, you know, all the new streaming services that we were not in at that moment, there's huge question marks all the time. Do we get in on this? Is it a fad? Is it going to be only two years? By the time we get in, will we not even be able to compete in price? Um, what are the big guys doing? And you're right. It's intimidating what you see out there and you don't know what people are doing. But we've been always keen on believing in our DNA, making sure that the first thing that we do is making sure that the user experience and the product, no matter what's inside of it, is number one. And with that model, we haven't failed. One of the other things I've noticed about your success is beyond what exists inside the quality and the affordability of this, it's the people that work with you. Yeah. Um, through generational products like these and through the successful companies like yours, I've found that there seems to also be 
a core belief or core value system that exists within the company to have the confidence to be able to execute on what other people are afraid of. How have you been able to do that? We have a good network. I mean, you mentioned it. We have a good partnership group. I mean, we have over 30 distributors in the world that we sell in various countries. We get constant feedback. What's happening in the market? What is the consumer behavior? What are people looking at? Um, and when we sit at roundtable discussions and steering meetings about what's the next thing, we do go through the process. And sometimes we take, we take that risk that, we, hey, should we be putting this out? Should we be doing this? Um, but it really comes down to listening to not only our you know, B2B partners, but also our end users. You know, our consumers are more now than ever vocal. We get a lot of input and we don't, you know, like I said, it's easy to get stuck in your own bubble. And we, we, we tend to sort of look out and see, well, is there a format for this product? Is there a use case for this tech? And even if it's the most leading technology and people have asked me, why don't you get into this thing? Why don't you get in gaming? Why don't you get in that? You know, it's not going to maybe be for us. As much as I would love it, it's just not, you know, the idea. And more now than ever, we've really captured more than tech. We've captured lifestyle and design because it's all about the experience. And we've spoken about this before. It's the experience factor that makes the tech awesome. You can have the best tech and the worst experience, and it's like, well, what's the point? Yeah, same thing with food. You could have yep. the best food and a horrible experience and yep. you'll never go back again. Yep. Um, to that point as well, that we learn lessons from consumers, and a lot of companies utilize arrogance uh, to defeat themselves. You know, for companies like theirs for years that have been looking in consumer data, uh, direct consumer data, meaning like Steve Wynn talks to the bellhop because they know exactly what the customers are saying. Right. Right. They get them in and out. For you, what's the most surprising feedback that you have adjusted to that you guys were, you know, maybe going down one path or roadmap and all mm -hmm. of a sudden all the feedback was, oh, no, no, you, yeah, yeah. this is what we like. Less is more. We started with a radio that was wood with three knobs. Okay. You had on, off, volume, tune. And of course we knew the simplicity was what made it so appealing. But as the tech came out and we wanted to incorporate all these different services, it brings in all these bells and whistles. And it becomes a UX, it becomes a UI interface, it becomes a design idea aesthetic that you have to account for. And we got to the point um, when we relaunched this model, the Model 1 Digital, where we had so much to offer and we had all these buttons and all these things and like our customers were just like, it's too complicated, there's too many presses, you gotta remember how to navigate it, like we want the simplicity. Um, and that's been really the, the, the thing that we've leaned on in the last couple of years is how to keep the tech simple. Um, and that came right from the customers. They were like, less is more. And I think that less is more lesson uh, also should be subscribed to in all these SaaS solutions that are coming out. That so many, especially in like SFA, which is Salesforce Automation, or FFA, Fieldforce mm -hmm. Automation, different CRMs and ERPs, there's so, about 90% of the capability is used by 0.001% of the people. Yeah. And I think the same thing holds true yeah. uh, with Tivoli in what you're doing. Now, you've also created Tivoli together. Yeah. Yep. And so now we've taken on another aspect of community. Mm -hmm. um, what was the impetus of creating Tivoli together? Yeah, so um, over the years, Tivoli has done a lot of different charitable involvement with different organizations, um, donations, fundraisers. Through my time traveling um, throughout the, the network that we have, you know, I've seen a lot of countries where there's a lot of different things, a lot of problems that are unique to their countries, a lot of common problems that are unique to everywhere. And I started to get this sense of, well, what could we do as a consumer electronics company um, to be 
more sustainable to have a conscious about the future and get involved in both social, environmental uh, issues. And it was a, it was a idea that we thought, well, can we pull this off? And I struggled with it because I thought, well, we're not as big. Maybe we don't have the resources to do this. But then we found a creative way to create a platform where customers of ours and partners of ours can hear about a lot of different nonprofit organizations that are doing a lot of good. Um, they can come read about them on our website. We'll be actively promoting these companies. And through their purchases online at our website, they can donate to any of these organizations and find other ways to get involved. And we want to be a pathway for them to do that. And we kind of realize no matter how big or small you are, however your voice is and whatever your demographic is, even if it's a small voice to a small demographic, you're speaking and you're making a positive change. So um, we just launched that and it's super excited. We have a lot of cool organizations already on board and we're going to continue you know, as we go with that. Well, I know if I was marketing your company, I would have a find your frequency campaign because you are an expert at the marketing side of frequency. Your products itself hold their own frequency that's beaconing to a certain spectrum of people. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that the philanthropic side of what you do as well is allowing people to find their frequency yeah. and to address their spectrum or who's tuning into our channel sure. uh, as we tie on. Considering that you are frequency specific, I give the example of Dr. Pimple Popper because she's my favorite, that <laughs> I'm not a big fan of watching pimples being popped, but she has more subscribers and a TV show sure. than all of the Pro Football Hall of Fame yeah. combined uh, because she knows her frequency the same way that Tivoli yeah. and Tivoli together uh, is transmitting that positivity and that frequency to a certain spectrum. Well, thank you so much for allowing so many people to tune into Tivoli. Tune yeah. into Tivoli together. You're doing an extraordinary job to thank you. impact the world as a compassionate capitalist. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. I am here with my esteemed co-host, the Ed McMahon of Office Hours, <laughs> the man Jason Waller. He is the CEO of Power Home Solar and, of course, the True Underdog podcast. Look what I have as, a, as the inside there, the True Underdog right there. Just you, like, it's just amazing saying. what money can buy, huh, oh. Jason? <laughs> Incredible. And, of course, we have my friend Michael Kaplan. He is the managing partner at Miller Kaplan. Welcome. How are you doing? Nice to meet you. Thanks. Good to have you Thanks on here. I see you got the message about what tennis shoes uh, to wear. Of course. Part Absolutely. of the crew. And last but not least, the incredible Dave Marino, partner at Brown Rudnick and sports agent, author, and entrepreneur, and speaker, by the way, which leads right into our unbelievable, legendary guest, a dear friend, and more importantly, a mentor of mine, Jack Canfield. Our first guest is Jack Canfield, transformational speaker and author. Welcome to Office Hours. My pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm going to start in a different space than the chicken soup for the soul stuff and all the New York Times bestsellers that you have. You know, I'm part of an extraordinary organization that's changed my life, uh, which led me to my mission of empowering over a billion people to be happy. Uh, it's called the Transformational Leadership Council. Uh, it was the catalyst for the movie The Secret. Uh, it has the greatest thought leaders around the world all twice a year getting together to change the world. How did you put this group together and why did you put this group together of TLC members? Well, I was looking for a group to belong to of people who ran transformational training companies and there was no such thing. And I had a college professor once tell me, if you're looking for a book on a topic and you can't find it, it means you're supposed to write it. So basically I 
developed this organization. I invited 30 people like John Gray, Men Are From Mars, and people like that to my living room in my home for a three-day gathering to see if they wanted to create an international association. Everyone joined. And um, that was 15 years ago. And now we have about 150 members from all over the world. Jack, that, that's amazing. And I am going to go to Chicken Soup for the Soul because I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a question about it. But it's probably not the type of question you normally get on this on this amazing book. And thank you for inspiring so many people, being that comfort for, for decades, for so many generations uh, with that book. But a lot of people don't know, 33 publishers turned it down and said no. And I'm a true believer in the only way to guarantee success is to try one more time. So talk to us a little bit about how you felt in those moments and why did you keep at it? What was it about the book that made you say, you know what, I gotta push through, get to that next publisher and get it to the masses? Well, it was actually about 33 in New York turned us down and then 144 total wow. over time turned us down over the period of about 18 months. And uh, was the 145th publisher said yes, and only took one yes to change my life and, and affect a lot of people. But I think what kept us going was I knew in my heart of hearts that every time I would give a talk and tell these stories, people would come up and say, is that story in a book anywhere? And I always had to say no. And they said, well, my daughter needs to read it. My sales staff needs to read it. My students need to read it. And so I just knew there was a market for it. But uh, up until then, in the publishing world, collections of short stories never worked because mostly they were literary. They weren't real. They weren't, uh, you know, nonfiction. Basically, we finally found a publisher that did it. Uh, we asked him how many copies we think we'd sell, you know. He said, oh, maybe 20,000. We said, well, our goal is 150,000 by Christmas and a million and a half in a year and a half. And he laughed at us. And I'm sure a lot of you out there watching have had people laugh at you when you shared your goals. But about three years later, he bought a plane that cost him about $100 million. <laughs> and um, he's very, very successful as well as we are. So he's very happy he said yes. So Jack, um, nice to meet you, by the way. And I uh, just, just wanted to ask you some questions. Uh, I'm a leader of my firm, and I'm responsible you know, to uh, motivate a lot of our people and our personnel and my partners. And I just wanted to see what types of strategies have you, um, you know, come up with to you know, work with those successful leaders on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, what types of strategies would you suggest and recommend for you know, um, motivational leaders in their firms? Well, I think a leader has to have a vision, a very clear vision of what it is they want to achieve. They have to be able to share that vision in terms of creating a, a story that inspires people. They have to walk their talk so people will trust them and want to follow them. And they need to be, you know, communicating with people on a regular basis, keeping them aligned with that vision, but also listening to what is their part in it? What do they want to do? I think leaders need to be good listeners. And then I think leaders need to reward people when they achieve either milestones or the final goal. Um, you know, we have a profit sharing plan in my company where we share 15% of the profits as a bonus plan with all the people that, that work here. Doesn't matter if they've been here one year, three months or 15 years. So they feel like they're part of it, which means that they're very involved in wanting to make it work. So they're coming up with ideas, they're willing to share what they see is working or not working, et cetera. Those are the main things. And I think that, you know, what creates motivation is a desire for something that exists up here that I don't have yet and a belief that I can get there and then a pathway, a plan, if you will, for how to get there and seeing my part in it. Those would be the main things I would say. Jack, you've got a lot of books behind you and, I mean, a lot. And <laughs> not as many as you sold. <clears throat> yeah, not, not as many as you sold. But 
you know, running a business, which you, which wait, you wait, just, I got you a question. Yeah. How many books have you read? One. Is it mine? No. Yours? Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote my first book. I've never, I've never read a book. Kind of like you, Jack. You know, I won an Entrepreneur of the Year award, and they're like, I'm always telling stories that I motivate and inspire my team. And they're right. like, you got to put that story in a book and help inspire people. And so I did that. It was hard. And I did that. I, 100 yeah. hours was involved to get it done, and it comes out soon. But it's an inspiration to see somebody that's out there speaking, telling stories. That's like, yeah, I guess I could put that in a book. And then be told no, and then turn around and find that to change so many people's lives. But I wanted to ask you, you know, when you started to bring in your employees, because you mentioned something about kind of a 15% profit share for the employees. A lot of businesses right. out there, mine included, we're on a mission to make sure we have life-changing events for all our employees, right? There's a lot of companies that are right. growing that want to do that. And I think that's how you build great culture. They're, they're working and rowing for the same thing. When you're talking about that profit center, how enlightened are they? How excited are they to join your team compared to maybe a competitor or, or, or something else because of that? I think the people that join our team, more than the profit share, which is nice, I think they join our team because they feel like they're part of something that makes a difference in the world. You know, there's three things that make up self-esteem. It's feeling lovable, capable, and significant. So if I'm included, we include our staff, everyone's loved. I mean, we have a real family. Uh, secondly, they feel capable because we're constantly sending them to trainings and providing them with all the tools they need. And thirdly, they feel significant because like they're making a difference in the lives of people. We've trained over 4,000 500 people to be trainers of our work. We've uh, we, we put on constant seminars all the time. The last seminar we did, we had 47 countries coming in by Zoom to participate in a three-day training we did over, over Zoom, which is what we all had to do during COVID. But they see the letters, they see the emails of the lives they've changed. So I think the values that are most important in our company are love and compassion and service and making a difference. And they feel that and they want to be part of that team. So most of our staff have taken our seminars and said, I want to grow up and be part of this. And that's how our staff has evolved. And in that evolution, Jack, one of the interesting, I think, obstacles that people face, uh, especially in transformation, is they either go all spiritual or all pragmatic. Right? It's either I'm going to allow everything to happen or I'm going to make it all happen by myself. And what I found through your guidance and mentorship is there's this beautiful blend of currencies. Uh, money is a currency, but also faith is a currency. You know, that belief you were talking about combined with a plan. And in order to effectuate what we want, we do have to have a relationship with both of the currencies. How do you teach people? to blend the currency of money with the currency of spirituality and faith? Well, money is uh, just an energy. It's a form of energy. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of energy in a packet. You can use it to do all kinds of things with. And so, you know, spiritual energy is where we get guidance, you know, through meditation, through intuition, through tapping in, maybe through, you know, having a spiritual teacher, whatever. And then what happens is once we get the guidance of what is our purpose to do in the world, and we all have different purposes. Some people are meant to be mechanics and some people are meant to be musicians and some people are meant to do what all of us do. And then it's like, how do I use the technology that's in the world to actually manifest that? 
So intuition and purpose and dreams, they're all great ideas, but we have technology like my book, The Success Principles, like the stuff that Tony Robbins teaches, that you all teach, that allow us to actually bring into action this guidance. So action without tapped into spiritual guidance turns into a lot of crappy stuff in terms of, you know, things that hurt people when when we, you know, ruin the environment in the sake of profit and so forth. But, you know, having spirituality without taking action is also delusional. And so we need the combination of both. So it's like tune into your higher self, to God, to spirit, whatever, and then use all the tools, technology, money, etc., to manifest whatever you're guided to bring into being like your book uh, that you mentioned or you know a, a company that's doing good or putting on sporting events whatever it might be they're all needed and they all require both to do it really really well you know you talk about this concept of balance and that's what we focus on at least in our firm too in terms of balancing that kind of work life that you're working through in your personal life and your spiritual life and it's right. extremely important to to foster that culture and that's what we that's what we do at our firm is really try and foster that culture of having that balance that life isn't about work completely, right? I mean, we work to, to live, not live to work. And so, you know, I really appreciate that concept that you, you're, you're speaking about in terms of that balance of spirituality versus work and professionalism. Yeah, I look at seven areas of life. You know, there's a financial world, there's a relationship world, there's a professional world, there's fun and recreation, there's health and fitness, there's making a difference in the world, you know, uh, all that. And so, each of those areas needs our attention, you know, family, friends, health, fitness, fun, joy, making a difference in the world, uh, making money, making sure we have enough. And when we have all that imbalance, our lives work. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, different times we focus on different things based on what emerges in the world and in, in our families and so on and so forth. But if we know how to be successful, you know, each of those areas, you know, studying finance, studying relationships, studying communication skills, studying management, etc. Then that's why I've read so many books, because it's given me all those tools I needed, along with about 600 workshops I took over the years. So um, <laughs> it's a lot of time. I, I have a quick question. Can we make it 3,001 books and I send you my book and we get your feedback? What do you, what do you think of that? Absolutely. There send you me go. your book. I'd love to read it. Perfect. Thank you. I'm not sure he has room for it. I know. <laughs> he'll, he'll recycle where's the, where's the spot on the shelf there? I have piles on the floor right now. We'll put it right there. I'll, I'll put yours next to my bench. I actually <laughs> That's where the connected the goodness is on the pile on the floor. <laughs> Jack is a hero of mine, a mentor. Uh, I love the idea of activity, right? We're given 24 hours, a man-made construct of time, and uh, all we have is activity. And we give meaning, something I've learned from Jack, to everything that we see. So you can learn to love that activity, even though initially if your quantum memory or your quantum being, it may not be attracted to it initially. You can learn to love it, just like over half of people have learned to love Jack Canfield and all his valuable information as a transformational speaker and author and mentor to millions, if not billions. Uh, Jack, I just wanna say thank you. Uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. It's always a thrill to see you and I can't wait to give you a hug when I can see you in person at the next TLC retreat. So thank you so much for joining us here on Office Hours. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Jack. Thank, thank you, Jack. You. Uh, thanks for having me, David. Thanks, you guys. Have a, you're, you're, you're fun to be with, so keep it up. <laughs> we'll come visit you. Be careful. We try. <laughs> His tenacity, like 144 David, that's, knows. That's, dude, that is awesome. You know what was most inspiring to me? 
he had this journey where you know he obviously persevered so long ago and reached this amazing pinnacle of success. A lot of people, you know what they do at that point? They take their foot off the gas. But this guy, Jack Canfield, is not only has his foot on the gas, but he's always learning. Over 600 seminars, over 3,000 books. On his leisure time, he's learning and improving and making himself better, even though he's reached heights and pinnacles most people can only dream of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in my life, and part of the reason I wanted to have him on Office Hours is he's a milestone for me, meaning that as I went through my quantum shift in life, my transformation, my wife was trying to force feed me this movie, The Secret. And to me, I was so resistant of The Secret because I remember telling her, there's some dude pretending like he has a Ferrari in a chair. That's not how you get a Ferrari. I have a Ferrari. I'll tell you how to get one. You work hard. You don't sit there high on your mom's couch dreaming about it. And I ended up, as I went through this transformation, watching the movie and Jack Canfield stars in the movie. And here I was 10 years later, invited to be on the transformational uh, leadership council with John Asseroff, Jack Canfield, Bob Proctor, the world thought leaders to be a part of it. And I'm sitting on the bus with my wife who forced me to watch this movie and Jack and his wife are sitting there next to us in the bus as we went to this function together. And my wife hits over and she goes, see, you can manifest anything, anything you desire. Look who we're going to see this movie mm. with. And it was Jack Canfield. Wow. What an incredible yeah. person. I'm sure there's millions of people with similar stories of how Jack has impact or diverted their life to a better place, a better situation, the same way you guys have done for this TV show as well. (laughs) All right, I'm excited about our next guest here on Office Hours. Next up, we've got Rich Kleiman, the co-founder of 35 Ventures. Rich Kleiman, welcome to Office Hours. How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I love seeing you, despite you being so much cooler than me, because very few people can share uh, in the experience that I had is, you know, when I ran Lee Steinberg, Sports and Entertainment, I was always kind of their guy. And then partnering with Warren Moon and Sports One Marketing for 12 years, you know, it was Warren's guy. I worked really hard and long uh, and had a lot of successes and failures in order to gain the credibility and respect to do business with the legends in sports, with the biggest billionaires, millionaires, and entrepreneurs. And a lot of times I had to fight my own ego because I didn't want to be that guy, uh, even though I had done the work. And uh, do you ever have that feeling uh, when you're in the mix of people who may have bigger names and bigger brands than you, but you have achieved what you've achieved to be there? And two, most of the time we're doing most of the work as, as well. Do you ever have any of that separation or ego involved that, hey, you know, what about me? I built the boardroom. Yeah, of course, I definitely do. Um, And I'm not afraid to say it. A lot of the things that both you just mentioned and that, you know, we've talked about in the past are not unique to us. I think that everybody's like entrepreneurial climb or everybody's story professionally always has a different turn and everybody's has a different timeline and I think that you know we all grew up in the 80s and 90s in this era of starting to see people really glamorize and sensationalize for getting wealthy really quick and getting rich really early and dropping out of school to make millions and you know I think for me growing up in New York City that's what I aspired and I felt like I had this certain timeline of when things were supposed to happen for me and I wish I had enjoyed the process a bit um, but I think that's a little bit of who I am. You know, I'm always going to be looking at what's in front of me and a little bit of that complacency and paranoia. But 
it has less to do with my ego now and more to do with missing opportunities that I feel like are out there. Hi, Rich. Nice to meet you. I work a lot with the entertainment in, in the entertainment industry with clients. Um, we always are talking about crossing over right from one to another i'll work with say maybe an actor or an actress and they'll want to move over and, and we'll create a brand for them or you know some type of crossover or a musician who ends up being you know wants to do film um, or a series what do you see in terms of the struggles or or the issues that of crossing over from one part of the entertainment industry to another part well, listen, they're, they're all so intertwined now more than ever, especially as it relates to basketball and its relationship with the entertainment world and the music world. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, it's about being educated. You really have to respect the fact that each sport, each industry around each sport, each form of the entertainment business is a different business. And when you're at the very top, you see the great ones that are able to impact across the board. But again, to what David said, like, that didn't come overnight. That came with the climb, and that came with the experience, and that came with being involved throughout their life at different parts, the different parts in basketball, in football, in film, in TV, in media, whatever it may be. And then I think when you get to a certain point and you gain that experience in each one of these verticals, you then start to find yourself moving from industry to industry with a bit more ease because the language and some of the people that you've met through the years remains consistent. I am also an agent and I've worked a lot with, with your former agency on different things and uh, mentor a lot of young aspiring agents. And they always ask me, you know, what should I do? What's the key? What have you seen in your space as both a lawyer and agent that, that is a successful agent? And I always tell them the rich climbing model. And what is that? What you and Kevin Durant have done Right, you making that decision and going to Jay and probably Juan and Desiree back in the day and saying, you know what, I don't want to work with everybody. I want to be working with Kevin Durant solely and building an empire. It is such a shift in the industry and I wish more people would take an approach like you two have because you guys have been able to accomplish so much because you've been singly focused on Kevin Durant, his brand off the court, on the court, and all his business ventures. Talk to me about that decision to do that and what were some of the difficulties in, 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 in bucking a model that's been consistent from when Dave's partner, Lee Steinberg, started the profession you know, three decades ago. It took a lot of, again, experience working with artists and to realize that when I started working with Kevin, that there was something that he was looking for that I felt like I could fill. Um, and that also entailed a certain level of commitment and focus and time spent, you know, and I think that one thing I really did learn in Rock Nation that was incredible and that I learned from being a manager of music was the idea of when you're in the music business and someone's shooting a music video or they're in the studio making an album, even though I'm not playing any instrument or holding a camera, I have to be there. If the shoot went till two, three in the morning, I have to be there. How am I going to show Kevin how much he should trust me if I figure I'll just chill at my house this weekend and I'll call him and make sure the deal's done? When I got into the weeds with Kevin, I started to really hear what he wanted. And this was an athlete that had the potential, mind you, to have this empire or have this business that we're building. Rich, big fan. When I, I used to say as a kid, when I grew up, I want to be an ultimate sports agent. So, you know, meeting David and Dave and yourself, that was always my dream. It didn't work out that way, but sometimes you got to deal with egos. And sometimes you deal with things that just don't go your way. And so the whole dynamic spins around and you're going to have some bad days. So who do you get mentored to or what are, what are your daily routines to try to 
stay positive and keep your camp and your team positive? Yeah, I mean, I'm a positive guy. Like, I'm an optimistic guy. I, um, I find humor in almost everything, you know, but I understand what's important. And because of that being just the character that I feel like that I'm kind of, that I embody, it's less about me having to rally people and more about people just kind of seeing the way in which KD and I carry ourselves and in the way in which we treat people. And, you know, I just don't feel like you have to be, you know, I don't know if you can curse on this show, but I don't think you have to be a in business anymore. I don't think you have to, you know, for whatever reason, when I was growing up again and watching these movies and seeing these people that had reached such great success, like it came with it that they may be a shark, they are killer, you know, and that's just not how KD and I operate. We advocate for what we want clearly, and we have no problem instilling our will in a situation. But if I have to treat somebody badly to get that, we're not doing it. If the energy has got to be bad in the room, then we're going to leave the room. I think one of the biggest lessons listening to you uh, that really, for me, feels really good is the forgiveness side of, hey, you've made mistakes and so have we. And you, you and I especially know, hey, to get to where we are, we had to make a lot of mistakes. And a lot of times, I think the people that lead the way now today, they forget how many mistakes we've made and they aren't forgiving and then it carries through to the firm that they're not forgiving as well. It's no question why and how you keep so many clients and you get so many clients and you make a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Rich, for joining us on Office Hours. Thank you. Thanks, Rich. Thank Thanks, you. Rich. Take care, Rich. I'm going to take a lesson out of that because I'm wired like, go, 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 go. I want to breathe and chill and relax. Like I said, I mentor a bunch of these, these, these young kids, and folks get so lost on what they think the profession is, they forget that at the root of it is a person. Mm-hmm. And what Kevin Durant and Rich Kleiman have built, the reason why they've built what they built is because Rich has been there every step of the way. He's been supporting him not only professionally but personally. For anybody that wants to be a sports agent or a sports executive, you have to remember that this talent is not just talent. They're humans. You have to treat them that way, and you'll be successful. And Kevin is one of the coolest cats out there, like straight up. He's such a role model for people. Yeah, great role models for us all. Once again, portraying being kind to his future self and doing good deeds. Both of them are, as you mentioned, Dave, especially in you know the justice side of what's going on by providing opportunity, which to me is the number one way that we can create change is by providing opportunity for those that are prepared and ready to go get it. Next up, we have an incredible guest here on Office Hours. You've heard some amazing guests this episode. Now let's hear the takeaway of the day from Jason Waller, host of the True Underdog Podcast. I'm Jason Waller with your takeaway of the day. My biggest takeaway for this episode is about the role that fun plays in success. Time flies when you're having fun, and entrepreneurs who are able to infuse fun into mundane activities and gamify aspects of their life and business are the ones who will see the best results. Our next guest is Strauss Zelnick, founder of ZMC, chairman and CEO of Take-Two Interactive. Welcome to Office Hours, Strauss. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. Now, you represent to me someone that I would like to mentor me as a CEO. Um, The things that you've been able to accomplish in the adaptability into what was a traditional career, now into cutting edge uh, types of technology and industries that most 
well, let's just put it, middle-aged white males like ourselves don't even understand, and yet you're leading the way with Take-Two Interactive. How have you evolved as a business uh, person and entrepreneur to be able to adapt to the ever-changing, quickly-changing industries from traditional to now interactive? I'm not sure I actually have evolved. I was fortunate. I started in traditional entertainment at Columbia Pictures long ago, and at that time, in the uh, what is now the old-fashioned entertainment business, um, they had they had new media even then. And um, in those days, new media involved um, video cassette distribution and pay television. And those big, successful entertainment companies needed someone to look after those areas. So they, they looked around for the least important, least valuable person at the company because those areas were so small. And at Columbia Pictures, that was me. So by default, um, I became responsible for new media in my first job, even though my real job was television distribution. And I had to acquaint myself with all things digital long before that became you know, popular. And that threaded through my entire career working for other big companies and ultimately informed the decision that my partners and I made to start ZMC now about 20 years ago. Let me ask you this. With the company that you've built and, and you know, take two interactive and where you guys are now, you just talked about what the future is going to have. What do the next three to five years look like in your business and your industry for the entertainment? Well, take two specifically, we're on the brink of, a, of an enormous um, period of growth in our release schedule. We're releasing 60 titles in the next three years. We basically doubled our release program uh, from where it was. And at the same time, we're trying to maintain and enhance our quality which is challenging because we've been fortunate. We've had an incredible hit ratio and our teams um, aim to create the highest quality entertainment in, in the industry. If things break our way, then we will have a much larger and more profitable company in the next few years than we've had in the past and things have gone pretty well in the past. Well, all of us probably have played a video game or two, right? <laughs> from, from Atari way back when, right, to what we see today. Um, it, it's amazing some of the things and some of the titles you're talking about. I do want to switch gears a little bit. I know back in this past February, your um, company acquired the Second City, a famous you know, comedic studio that started in Chicago. I work a lot with talent, and coming out of that studio itself, you know, you've got some famous comedians, Tina Fey, uh, Bill Murray, uh, to name a few. Uh, it, it intrigues me. What, what you know, you, you go from interactive to now buying this uh, Second City studio. What are your plans for that venture? What, what are you thinking? Well, the Second City was, um, was acquired by ZMC, and ZMC's acquired numerous entertainment brands over the years. Uh, we also are a, a large investor in Nine Story, the leading independent animation company. And uh, in the past, we owned Time Life. We owned Columbia Music Entertainment. We've owned a number of entertainment companies. Um, you're right that Second City is the home to and creator of amazing talent. In fact, Stephen Colbert is on our board and chairs our artistic advisory council at the Second City. What intrigued us about the Second City is it, it's not just a home for talent. It's not just a comedy venue. It also is an education business, does corporate education and corporate training. And it also trains up and coming you know, actors and comedians. The other thing that's intrigued us is this shift to digital distribution in the pandemic. The Second City continued to educate people and continued to do corporate training digitally. 
um, and also continue to entertain digitally. And we think there's great opportunity to expand that side of the business going forward. And Strauss, I'm, I'm happy you touched on the pandemic. And, and that's one thing I want to ask you, because obviously your industry was one of the few industries that saw a little bit of a boon during the pandemic and an inverse relationship as you know some other companies didn't see. Uh, what did you learn from the pandemic, A, and B, what things can you apply that you guys did during the pandemic, both to entertainment and the video game business that you can use moving forward for more sustained success and growth? It's such a great question. You know, what is that line? Um, never let a crisis go to waste. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you, you never want to be cavalier because the pandemic caused so much pain and suffering for so many people. And it really has been a, a tale of two cities, right? Yeah. Many of us have actually, you know, done just fine. Other people lost loved ones and and to this day are still compromised either personally or professionally uh, by this, this terrible tragedy. That said, you know, we were very fortunate. We were among the enterprises that actually did very well. Uh, and, and one of the things that we learned is that people are shifting to digital forms of learning, digital forms of consumption and digital forms of entertainment. And the pandemic for sure, you know, put fuel uh, on the fire. Uh, so we certainly learned that. I think the second thing we learned, and this is more sort of looking inwardly, is that we have a very resilient organization and that a strong culture and a um, common mission can help you survive the most extraordinary challenges because our company's morale was and remains very high and people showed up and they did what they had to do to, to perform despite incredible challenges. It's hard to make video games on a good day. It's really hard to make them when suddenly many thousands of people are working from home. I guess we also learned that it is possible to work remotely effectively. I'm not sure if that's a learning that can be applied as broadly as some companies think they can. I, I'm a little skeptical. However, it, it, w it was, it did come as a surprise to me that the wheels didn't come off the train. You know, everything was, was okay, more than okay. Thanks Strauss for those invaluable lessons. You're incredible entrepreneur, founder of ZMC, chairman and CEO of Take-Two Interactive. I can't wait to see what you have up your sleeve next. Thanks for joining us here on Office Hours. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks Rob. Great to see you all. I'm excited to hear from our next guest, Rob Deerdeck, entrepreneur, actor, producer, and reality TV personality. Rob Deerdeck, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Ever since we met, I've been watching more and more of your stuff. I'd seen it, but I really didn't dig deep into it. But you won me over when we had our conversation about time. And you know, I'm a firm believer that we are given 24 hours a day of pragmatic man-made time and that people don't understand it, they don't use it, they put conditions and judgments on it, they put interference, obstacles and void in the way of it. Uh, and I actually believe there's ways of bending time, of utilizing it in a productive, accessible and gracious manner let everyone know how time has been a benefit or an asset to your extreme success. Because one thing you and I have in common, if people read our bios and looked at what we're doing, they're like, how the heck do Dave and Rob do what they do, get all of this done in a day? Yeah, and look, I, I think you have to purposely master time. You know, and, and at the end of the day, you can only do so much. And when you create something, you want to 
get it to automation as quick as possible. Because when you do something for the very first time, it takes so much energy and development and then you understand it, then it gets a little bit easier. Then you either have to fully automate it and you do that by creating a system or a process or put a, putting a body in place. And so I've done that to every single aspect of my entire existence. Then I designed first the way that I wanted to live. Then I designed as it relates to the time I spend with my family and my kids and how much time I want to work, spend on my health. And then I took those buckets of time and then built systems inside those so that I lived this highly organized, efficient, peaceful, balanced, happy life with purpose by mastering time. No, I, I love that. So Rob, I'm a podcaster as well. I run a company, but I started a podcast called True Underdog Podcast. I love it. I'm new to it, but I love it and it's taken off. Let's talk about your podcast, Build With Rob. What yeah. is the podcast about? And why did you want to get into to start doing podcasts? You know, like I really understand the power of media. And I think I think for all you guys, you know, it's really about, hey, we have the success. We want to be able to like share our voice at scale and and add a new dimension to who we are as business people. Right. But really, you know, because I build businesses from the idea stage all the way to exit the entire cycle, the show is different stages of that cycle and all the lessons that we're learning in real time time along the way. I'm using the platform to be like, look, this is the the first bit of business content that I've been able to showcase the depth of how I build and operate businesses, uh, but in a podcast form, because as we know, it's much easier just to get there and just get to talking about it, you know what I mean? Versus scaling it into a television or even a a show like this is much more complicated. Rob, it seems like you're you're involved in so many things and, and like you just said, it's so important to manage your time. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's great in terms of the podcasts that you're doing, these other projects that you're doing. Um, what speaks to me is, is your development of these brands. How have you been able to successfully build out these brands that you're, you're you know, developing as well as how do you pick which ones you want to invest your time in? Because obviously your time is worth quite a bit. Yeah, and, and look, you know, it's a system, right? And and it's it's personal mastery, right? It's like I'm trying to master how do I curate entrepreneurs, markets, and ideas and shape them into sustainable, ac- profitable, acquirable businesses, right? So it's a much more sophisticated approach. And, you know, I've built – uh, 16 brands since I launched in 2016. And, and they're almost like vintages of wine, right? And over the years, you launch another one, you learn even more. You launch another one, you learn even more. And, and it's essentially a collection of this continual data set of like what it takes to be successful. This is unit economics. This is founder market fit. This is, uh, you know, really... Um, how you find white space and define it. What, what are your unfair advantages that lead to revenue? And then how do I, my platform is then how do I help accelerate to product market fit? Because when you start from zero, the number one thing that you're trying to figure out is how do I take this idea and get product market fit to where it can scale now? Rob, I want to thank you for something on behalf of my buddy Dave. So Dave has this mission to make one billion people happy. Over. Over one billion. And him and Sadhguru are on that mission. And I'm a true believer that the happier you are, the better you perform. 
what I've always noticed yep. about you, and unlike Dave, I've watched your content for years. Fun has been at the root of everything you've done. Every show, from ridiculousness to Robin Big to seeing you skateboard, clearly you're having fun and enjoying yourself doing something that you've obviously thought about very, very deeply and put the work in and do. How important is it to have fun in what you do and what sort of things do you do to stay uh, happy and in having fun in, in, in spaces that are very stressful? It's the most fun when it requires the least amount of effort. <laughs> now, keep in mind, I'm shooting 250 um, episodes a year, but I'm only, when you look at my total time spent in the year, it's 4% of my total time. I shoot six a day. I get there at nine and leave at three o'clock and shoot six per day and spread it out over the year. And then over time, I've optimized it in such a way that I just go in there and and just have fun. Like the entire system delivers finished shows to me that I just have to, to begin to sort of organize and then go and do. And, and to me, you know, I say I'm fueled by the joy of creation. I just love to create things, right? It's also when I built my venture studio, I built it in a way that my primary role is the creation process. And then I grow it from bi-weeklies to bi-monthly to board meetings to where in a series A, I'm off the board. I don't even I don't even want to be involved in the decision making any longer because I want to stay in the creation side. Rob Deerdeck, founder and CEO of the Deerdeck Machine, host of the incredible podcast Build with Rob. I can't wait to see you again. Go be on time. Rob Deerdeck, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Thanks Rob. Rob. Thank you, guys. Thanks Thank for your time. I give him a 10. I give him a 10. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Put it in your, put it in your calendar, <laughs> Rob. You got a 10. Thank you so much. Gamify time. That's what I learned there. I got, I'm taking lessons from this, and I've got to You're step up You're getting his game. lessons through me. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm a, well, now I'm going to the horse's mouth. I, I, this is going to be great. Made us look bad. That's okay when this comes right. out. It's going to be a little We didn't get a stinker. picture show to him. We thought we could have the ridiculousness, too, you and I. It's we, perfect show for you and I. It should be, it should be, it should be called the belly gang. <laughs> Breaking even, that's yeah, what I call it. Unbelievable guest, but more importantly, my unbelievable host. I really want to thank you, Jason, Michael, and of course, David there on the end. You guys were amazing. Thank you, everyone. Come back and join us here on Office Hours. Now, a quick word from our JA Impact honoree partner, presented by Screwball Peanut Butter Whiskey. Junior Achievement Worldwide prepares young people for employment and entrepreneurship, delivering hands-on experiential learning and work readiness, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. The recipient of the JA Impact honoree is selected based on their mission-driven values and had the opportunity to align with Junior Achievement Worldwide through their 100 million plus alumni network driving awareness to their brand through junior achievements millions of entrepreneurs looking to make an impact on the world hi i'm steve yang co-founder of screwball whiskey jack canfield have changed millions of lives through his chicken soup for the soul books and he continued to share those lessons and empower others through his work with transformational leadership council Thank you, Jack, for all you do, and congratulations on today, Junior Achievement Honoree. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Office Hours, and a special thank you to our featured co-hosts and guests for joining today's episode. See you next week on Office Hours.